Chapter 10. The Long Hill Bert arrived at the shop, and with as little delay as possible, he loaded up the handcart with the things which had been sent for, and started on the return journey. He got on all right in the town, because the roads were level and smooth, being paved with wood blocks. If it had only been like that all the way, it would have been easy enough, although he was a very small boy for such a large chuck, and with such a heavy load. While the wood road lasted, the principal trouble he expected was the difficulty of seeing where he was going, the handcart being so high and himself so short. The pair of steps on the cart, of course, made it all the worse in that respect. However, by taking great care, he managed to get through the town all right, although he narrowly escaped colliding with several vehicles, including two or three motor-cars and an electric tram, besides nearly knocking over an old woman who was carrying a large bundle of washing. From time to time he saw other small boys of his acquaintance, some of them former schoolmates. Some of these passed by carrying heavy loads of groceries in baskets, and others with wooden trays full of joints of meat. Unfortunately, the wood paving ceased at the very place where the ground began to rise. Bert now found himself at the beginning of a long stretch of macadamized road which rose slightly and persistently throughout its whole length. Bert had pushed the cart up this road many times before, and consequently knew the best method of tackling it. Experience had taught him that a frontal attack on this hill was liable to failure, and so on this occasion he followed his usual plan of making diagonal movements, crossing the road repeatedly from right to left and left to right, after the fashion of a sailing ship tacking against the wind, and halting about every twenty yards to rest and take his breath. The distance he was to go was regulated not so much by his powers of endurance as by the various objects by the wayside, the lamppost, for instance. During each rest he used to look ahead and select a certain lamppost or street corner as the next stopping place. When he started again he used to make the most strenuous and desperate efforts to reach it. Generally, the goal he selected was too distant, because he usually overestimated his strength, and whether he was forced to give in, he ran the truck against the curb and just stood there, panting for breath, and feeling profoundly disappointed at his failure. On the present occasion, during one of these rests, it flashed upon him that he was being a very long time and he would have to buck up, or we'd get into a row, and he wasn't even halfway up the road yet. Selecting a distant lamppost, he determined to reach it before resting again. The cart had a single shaft and a crosspiece at the end, forming the handle. He gripped this fiercely with both hands, and placing his chest against it with a mighty effort, he pushed the cart before him. It seemed to get heavier and heavier with every foot of the way. His whole body, and especially the thighs and the calves of his legs, they pained terribly. 
But still, he strained and he struggled, and he said to himself that he would not give in until he reached the lamp post. Finding that the handle hurt his chest, he lowered it to his waist, but that being even more painful, he raised it up again to his chest and struggled savagely on, panting for breath, and with his heart beating wildly. The cart became heavier and heavier, and after a while it seemed to the boy as if there was someone in the front of it trying to push him back down the hill. This was a funny idea that for a moment he felt so inclined to laugh, but the inclination went almost as soon as it came and was replaced by the dread that he would not be able to hold out long enough to reach the lamppost after all. Clenching his teeth, he made a tremendous effort and staggered forward two or three more steps and then the cart stopped. He struggled with it desperately for a few seconds, but with all the strength which he had, it had all suddenly gone out of him. His legs felt so weak that he nearly collapsed onto the ground, and the cart began to move backwards down the hill. He was just able to stick to it and guide it so it had ran into and rested against the curb, and then he stood holding it in a half-dazed way, a very pale saturated with perspiration and trembling. His legs in particular shook so much that he felt that unless he could sit down for a while, then he would fall down. He lowered the handle very carefully so as not to spill the whitewash out of the pail which he was hanging from a hook under the cart, and sitting down on the curbstone, he leaned wearily against the wall. A little way down the road was a church with a clock in the tower. It was five minutes to ten by this clock. Bert said to himself that when it was ten, he would make another start. While he was resting, he thought of many things. Just behind the church was a field with several ponds in it, where he used to go with other boys to catch efforts. If it were not for the cart, he would go across now to see whether there were any then still there and he remembered that he'd been very eager to leave school and go to work, but they used to be fine old times then in school time, after all. Then he thought of the day when his mother took him to Mr. Rushton's office to bind him. He remembered that day very vividly. It was almost a year ago. How nervous he'd been. His hand had trembled so that he was scarcely able to hold the pen, and even when it was all over, they had both felt very miserable somehow. His mother had been very nervous in the office also, and when they had got home, she cried a lot, and held him close to her and kissed him, and called him her poor little fatherless boy, and she said that she hoped that he would be good and try to learn. And then he cried as well, and promised her that he would do his best. He reflected with pride that he was keeping his promise about being a good boy and trying to learn. In fact, he knew a great deal about the trade already. He could paint back doors as well as anybody, and railings as well. 
Owen had taught him jobs and lots of things that he'd promised to do when some patterns of graining for him so that he might practice copying them at home in the evenings. Owen, yes, he was a fine chap. Bert resolved that he would tell him what Crass had been saying to Easton. Just fancy, the cheek of a rotter like Crass trying to get Owen the sack. It would be more like it if Crass was to be sacked himself so that Owen could be foreman. One minute to ten. With a heavy heart, Bert watched the clock. His legs were still aching very badly, and he couldn't see the hands of the clock moving, but they were creeping on all the same. And now the minute hand was over the edge of the number, and he began to deliberate whether he might not rest for another five minutes. But he had been such a long time already on his errand that he dismissed the thought. The minute hand was now upright, and it was time to go on. Just as he was about to get up, a harsh voice behind him said, "'How much longer are you going to sit here, then?' Bert started up guiltily and found himself confronted by Mr Rushton, who regarded him with an angry frown, while close by towered the colossal figure of the obese sweater. The expression on his grey, greasy countenance betokening the pain he experienced on beholding such an appalling example of juvenile depravity. "'And oh, what do you mean by such conduct?' demanded Rushton indignantly. "'The idea of sitting here, like that, when most likely the men are all waiting for them things, aren't they?' Crimson with shame and confusion. The boy made no reply. "'Yeah, you've been there a long time,' continued Rushton. I've been watching you all the time I've been coming down the road. Bert tried to speak to explain why he'd been resting, but his mouth and his tongue had become quite parched from terror, and he was unable to articulate even a single word. You know, that's not the best way to get on in life, my boy, observed Sweater, lifting his forefinger and shaking his fat head reproachfully. Get along with you at once, Rushton said roughly. I'm surprised at you. The idea, sitting down, in my time. This was quite true. Rushton was not merely angry, but astonished at the audacity of the boy, that anyone in his employment should dare to have the impertinence to sit down in his time was just incredible. The boy lifted the handle of the cart and once more began to push it up the hill. It seemed heavier now than ever, but he managed to get on somehow. He kept glancing back after Rushton and Sweater, who presently turned the corner and were lost to view. And then he ran the cart into the curb again to have a breathe. He couldn't have kept it up much further without a spell, even if he'd been watching him, but he didn't rest for more than about half a minute this time, because he was afraid that they might be peeping round the corner at him. After this, he gave up the lamppost system, and he halted for a minute or so at regular short intervals. In this way, at length, he reached the top of the hill, and with a sigh of relief he congratulated himself that the journey was practically over. Just before arriving at the gate of the house, he saw Hunter sneak out and mount his bicycle and ride away. Bert wheeled his cart up to the front door and be carrying began carrying in the things. And while thus engaged, he noticed Philpot 
peeping curiously over the banisters of the staircase, and he called out to him, "'Give us an hand with this bucket of whitewash, will you, Joe?' "'Certainly, my son, with the greatest of agony,' replied Philpot, as he hurried down the stairs. As they were carrying it in, Philpot winked at Bert and whispered, "'Did you see Pontius Pilate anywhere outside?' "'He went away on his bike, just as I came in at the gate.' Did he? Ah, thank the Lord for that. I don't wish him no harm, said Philpot fervently, but, well, I hopes he gets run over with the motor. <laughs> In this wish, Bert entirely concurred, and similar charitable sentiments were expressed by all the others as soon as they heard that misery was gone. Just before four that afternoon, Bert began to load up the truck with the Venetian blinds, which had been taken down some days previously. "'Yeah, I wonder who will have the job of painting them,' remarked Philpot to Newman. Huh. "'Perhaps they'll take a couple of us away from here, eh?' "'I shouldn't think so. We're short-handed already. Most likely they'll put in a couple of fresh hands. Yeah, there's an hell of a lot of work with all them blinds, you know. I reckon they'll have to have three or four coats to state there in.' "'Yeah.' "'No doubt that's what uh, what will be done,' replied Newman, adding with a mirthless laugh. "'I don't suppose you have much difficulty in getting in a couple of chaps, will he?' "'No, you're right, mate. There's plenty of them walking about in a week's work would be a good send to them.' "'Come the thing of it,' continued Newman, after a pause. "'I believe the firm used to give all the blind work to old Latham, the Venetian blind-making, ma'am.' Perhaps they'll give him this uh, this lot to do, then. Yeah, very likely, said Pilfot. I should think he could do them. Cheaper even than us chaps could. But that's all the firm cares about, you know, cheapness. How far their conjectures were fulfilled will appear later. Shortly, after Bert had gone, it became so dark that it was necessary to light the candles, and Philpot remarked that although he hated working under such conditions, yet... He was always glad when the lighting up time came, because then knocking off time was not far behind. About five minutes to five, just as they were all putting in their things away from the light, Nimrod suddenly appeared in the house. He'd come in hoping to find some of them readily dressed to go home before the proper time. Having failed in this laudable enterprise, he stood silently by himself for some seconds in the drawing-room. This was a spacious and lofty apartment with a large semicircular bay window, and round the ceiling was a deep cornice. In the semi-darkness the room appeared to be of even greater proportions than it really was, and after standing thinking in this room for a little while, Hunter turned and strode out to the kitchen, where the men were preparing to go home. Owen was taking off his blouse and apron as the other entered, and Hunter addressed him with a malevolent snarl. "'Well, you can call in the office tonight as you go home.' Owen's heart seemed to stop beating. All the petty annoyances he had endured from Hunter rushed into his memory. Together with what Easton had told him that morning, he stood still and speechless, holding his apron in his hand and staring at the manager. "'What for?' he ejaculated at length. "'What's the matter?' "'You'll find out when we've you're wanted for when you'll get there,' replied Hunter, as he went out of the room, 
and away from the house. When he was gone, a dead silence prevailed. The hands ceased their preparations for departure, and they looked at each other and at Owen in astonishment. To stand a man off like that, when the job was not even half finished, and for no apparent reason, and on a Monday, too, well, it was unheard of. There was a general chorus of indignation. Harlow and Philpot, especially, were very rough. Yeah, well, if it comes to that, Harlow shouted, they've got no bloody right to do it. We're entitled to an hour's notice. Yes, of course we are, cried Philpot, his goggle eyes rolling wildly with wrath. And I should have it, too, if it was me. You take my tip, Frank. Charge up to six o'clock on your timesheet and get some of your own back. Everyone joined in the outburst of indignant protest. Everyone, that is, except Crass and Slime. But when they were not exactly in the kitchen, they were out in the scullery putting other things away, and so they happened that they said nothing, although they exchanged significant looks. Owen had by this time recovered his self-possession. He collected all his tools and put them in his apron and blouse and his, into his tool bag, with the purpose of taking them down with him that night. But, on reflection, he resolved not to do so. After all, it was not absolutely certain that he was going to be stood off. Possibly they were going to send him to some other job. They kept all together, some walking on the pavement and some on the road, until they got downtown, and then they separated. Crass, Sawkins, Bundy and Philpot adjourned to the cricketers for a drink. Newman went on by himself. Slime accompanied Easton, who had arranged with him to come that night to see the bedroom, and Owen went in the direction of the office.'